With all that being said, let's look at Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, down through verse 22. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him up on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Join me in praying as we ask God's blessing on his word. Lord, we thank you that we have your word, that we could hear your word today. And we pray that as we turn our attention to it, that you might aid us in being attentive to what it has to teach us. Lord, we pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would personalize these words to our life. Lord, as we see the work that you've done to bring redemption for your people, we might hear the tender invitation to experience your redemption personally. Lord, we ask that you would quiet our heart, listen for your voice even now. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to jump right into the main point of this morning's message. It's this, it's that God redeems through the giving of a son. God brings redemption through providing a son. One of the interesting features of this passage that we just read together is the fact that when Ruth and Boaz are married, they conceive and they have a son. And there are two ways this son is described in the passage. The first one that we can see here in verse 13 is that the Lord gave her conception. He, this son is, is introduced to us as a gift from God. A child that was delivered and given through God's strength and through God's provision for the people. One of the things you might not know if you just jumped into this part of the text is that Ruth had been married to her uh, husband who passed away in the words of chapter 1. She had been married for 10 years without children, which would have meant that she had been considered barren in those days. It was questionable whether she could have a child. But here, quickly after Ruth and Boaz are married, we see that God gives this son as a gift. So this child that is being referred to here is God's provision. The second thing we see about the child as we think about this boy, Obed, is that he is described as a redeemer. The verse 14, we know that Boaz had functioned as a cultural sort of redeemer in Ruth's life and in the life of Naomi, but in a stronger sense, this child is a message of God's redeeming work. In Naomi's life. God has done something to give restoration, to take a woman who had been empty and give her hope, and he's done it through the provision of this child. And so we see this child is described in verse 14, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Later we see that the boy referred to isn't just the provision of Boaz, it's this child she's holding in her arms. This is the sim God's redemption. 
in her life. And, and it goes on to say in, in verse 14, he's not left you without a redeemer and may his name be renowned. This child, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. And so as we wrap up this story, this really exciting story that has taken place in Naomi's life, we see that God has worked and God redeems through the giving of a son. That's how he provides redemption. Now we see, uh, if you think about what's going on here, the book's called Ruth. Boaz has been one of the major characters here. But as we close out this book, notice who is at center stage. It's Naomi. It's Naomi that's brought to the forefront. And, and it's a way of the writer indicating to us how we should read this passage. How we should experience this story. He wants us to experience it from Naomi's eyes. Because in, in a sense, that's who we are in the grander story of God's redemption. We are like Naomi. And so we're to hear the story not through the faithfulness of Ruth. You know, if we're tempted to be prideful, we might say, you know, I'm more like Ruth. I've been faithful. I upheld all these things. And I've earned, you know, I, I've brought a lot of this to bear. You know, or through the faithfulness of Boaz, we're to hear it through, through the story of Naomi. That's who we are to connect most deeply with. We are like Naomi. If we're going to see the goodness of God's saving work, it will be as we see herself in her shoes, as empty-handed people before God, whom God is now bringing redemption to. That's why we end with a focus on Naomi. So we see God redeems Naomi through the giving of a son. So let's join the writer in celebrating what God has done through Naomi's eyes. As we do that, we first discover that in God's redemption, God provides a son that gives Naomi a future. Now that's significant. Through this child here, born in Bethlehem, we see in this book that empty-handed Naomi now has her arms filled with hope. Now, if you just joined us this week for the first time, maybe you've missed kind of the backstory, but empty-handed is the right description for Naomi. You know, in a rather striking ending here that focuses out on the theme, it focuses us on the theme of the whole book. A child has been born to Boaz and Ruth, and the women of the city come celebrate, you know, just like you would expect, right? They're coming to gather around Naomi, who has this grandchild, Right? And they're excited. And we've, we've seen this, these women, we see them twice in the book of Ruth. And, and there's two times in the book of Ruth where the women have a conversation with Naomi. And, and it's, it's a little bit of a device that the writer uses to show Naomi's overall conversation with God. You see, at the beginning of the book, uh, Naomi had gone down into Moab. She had gone there with her husband and her two sons. They had married two women in Moab. But they had gone because there, because there had been a famine in the land. They struck out on their own. They went on down to, to Moab, and there, after they're married, the two sons die, her husband dies, and she's coming back to Israel. She decides that she'll go back and put her trust in the Lord if there's anywhere to find hope. She goes back, and she has a conversation with the women. The women of the city actually greet her as she comes in in chapter 1. We, we read about it at the beginning. But in the first, the first time, we see, there are two, these two conversations frame the whole book of Ruth to give us sort of a conversation between Naomi and the Lord. <laughs> What's true here? What should we hear? Well, she goes away and they say, you know, she comes back the first time and the women of the city say, hey, let's welcome back Naomi. Naomi's come back. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. 
Verse 21 of chapter 1, if you were to flip back there, I went away to Moab full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has brought calamity upon me. Now we know from our reading of the text earlier that it was their decision to go down to Moab that in many sense symbolically in the book it's a picture of sin. That they've left trusting in God's provision. That it's a part of God's broader judgment on the people of Israel because they've turned their back in ways on God. And we see that when she comes back, you know, she blames sort of the consequences of that on God. And she's having a conversation with God. She's saying, God is against me. <laughs> and the women in the city don't answer really yet at that point. But she says something at the end. After she says that, we noted that the next verse in chapter 1, verse 22, hints that she's wrong. She's not empty-handed. But that God has provided Ruth, and Ruth has returned with her as a hint of God's kindness in the story, that there's still hope. Well, here in the end, as everything's unfolded, we see that she's been provided for, her future has been secured, her near-term food provision has been taken care of, she now has, her daughter-in-law has married, and they've had a child, and she's holding this child in her arms, and here the women speak back in verse 14 through 16. In the beginning, she's speaking to the women. In the end, the women are the way that sort of voice God's gentle correction. It's gentle correction, actually, in the story. But they're celebrating at the end in words that mirror her bitterness at the beginning. As a way of saying, Naomi, you were wrong. (laughs) You were wrong. Look. Look what the Lord has done. He says in verse 14 through 16 of our text, chapter 4, again, now returning there. The Lord has not left you this day without a redeemer. You weren't empty-handed. The Lord isn't against you. He's not brought calamity upon you. In fact, when you had brought calamity upon yourself, through returning to the Lord, he's bringing restoration. He's working good in your life. It goes on to say that God did this through Ruth, the one she had sort of neglectfully failed to appreciate he did it through Ruth who wasn't a symbol of emptiness at the beginning but she says the the women of the city say Ruth is worth more to you she loves you and is worth more to you than seven sons picture of fullness and if you're not sure about that fullness ask Linnell Pugh she has seven sons and she can tell you how full her life is But she goes, you know, we see Naomi moving from this proclamation to the women of emptiness and bitterness to a celebration where they're saying, your hands are full. The Lord is a redeemer. God shows us over and over in this passage and in this way, his heart for us. It's amazing, actually. We look what it says. It says then after the women speak to her in verse 14 through 16 that she takes this child in her lap. And she's holding him in her arms and becomes, becomes his nurse. It's, it's saying, you know, now she's going to have her hands full with this little boy for an extended amount of time. And it's a joy to her. So, so we see really in Naomi a picture of God's redeeming kindness. She's empty-handed in her mind, but she is willing to return to the Lord and entrust herself to him. And in the end, her arms are full And the women of the city are celebrating with her that God has restored life. 
you know, for the near term, she knows that she's taken care of. She has someone in her old age that is going to provide for her, watch out for her. And that's a significant thing in this storyline. She's gone from empty to fullness. Her empty arms are now full. God shows us in, through this picture and many other ways in, throughout Scripture, God shows over and over for us that the hope of our salvation, that our hope for our future isn't secured by our own, by our own works because we've forfeited them through sin in many ways and we're, we're actually too weak. Uh, we, we often can't figure out how to work life out in the right direction for ourselves. We can't secure our future. But God shows us over and over that the hope of our salvation, our fullness in life, our fullness in our future is not in accordance with our own merit or activity. I don't know if you are thankful today to, to realize that God restored Naomi here. If you see yourself as someone who has sinned and is unable to secure your future, we discover here also that through someone else's faithfulness and God's provision, we have a hope and a future because God is a redeemer. And in order to hear our story in Naomi's, Naomi's story, let's make that clear. Naomi and her family abandoned hope in God and went on down to Moab. It's symbolically a sinful decision, much like our sin is pictured in that story that says that they're going to try their own way and their own provision. That is really what sin communicates to God. When we walk in sin, when we, when we decide to live with no thought about who God is, not asking ourselves, what's God's purpose for me? How has God instructed me to make decisions? When we decide to do that, we're living like Naomi and her family did at the beginning of this book. Sin is a way of going to Moab, striking out our own. You know, you may not think of it this way. It's a way of saying, God, as long as I can have bread, I don't care if I have you. That's, that's what it sounds like. God, you've, in, you, you've said I can trust you, but the temptation is, you can't trust me. <laughs> Go get your own. Go get what you need, what you think is good. And sin does this. It's a way of joining them in Moab. It puts them, of course, in a place where God's instruction and God's word would not be their life and hope. They, in essence, become Moabites. And in the broad view, we become others. <laughs> our identity becomes wrapped up in our sin. Which means we've rejected God. Their plans for themselves fall apart. You know, in the end, the longer we walk in sin, the reali we realize that we can't really fix our life. <laughs> It's not as good as we hoped it would be. You know, the, the old adage is sin will cost us more than we want to pay. It will take us farther than we want to go, and it will keep us longer than we want to stay. And it does that. And when we're there, we're tempted to despair that there's no hope. And listen, if you're a Christian here today, you've probably been in that place where you felt like there was no hope until you heard the good news that God is a redeemer. This is our story. We, we, we return to the Lord. If you're a Christian, you've repented. You've returned to the Lord and you said, I will entrust myself to the hope that he provides through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so we see this in the midst of it all. Naomi's husband and the sons perish. She's faced with what to do next. And it reminds us our own strategies that are rooted in a lack of faith and wrapped up in sin are powerless to solve our real problems in life. They're also powerless to solve the problems of the world. Can we just be honest? The world's full of problems. Problems that when we put our eyes on them are quite frankly overwhelming. And no matter what the next pundit on whatever news station you choose to watch says, they're 
really are no solutions except for the redeeming hope of God's word. The redeeming promise of Christ. And so, so what we see here is we often think we can figure it out, but our only real hope is to come home to God and trust that he is a redeemer. We have to trust that his heart is for us in the same way his heart was for Naomi. He finds joy in restoring broken sinners who entrust themselves to him in the provision of this son to Naomi. And for Naomi, when she could no longer provide for herself, points us to the real way that we also find hope. We find it by God's grace, undeserved gift, the provision of God given to us, not by our earning and our effort. We find it through repentance, not through righteousness. Listen, I'll just promise you, listen, if you think this is baloney and foolishness, that there really is no, no hope in God, Go ahead and try every other way that the world you. And you will come to a place where you realize in your despair that we cannot solve our problems. The deepest problems we have and the deepest problems of the world need a redeeming God who restores. And he's calling us to return to him and entrust ourselves to his heart. So here Naomi, Naomi in this story has a future now. <laughs> she has a future because God has provided a son. I love that word, nourisher of her old age. This son is a nourisher of her old age. You know, we got a lot of young, young people around here. When you're young, you feel like nothing is ever going to get to you. Like you're going to go on endlessly getting stronger, healthier, smarter, more successful. But you know, life and age have a way of changing that. You start to realize you're vulnerable. That there's going to come a time in every one of our lives, if we don't die young, where somebody else is going to take care of us. We're going to be dependent on someone else's provision for our life. Here, Naomi, God provides a son to nourish her old age. In her vulnerability, God is providing for her. And it's a picture of the gospel, of our hope. In our vulnerability to sin and inability to control what happens in the world, God is a real hope. A nourisher that we can trust in our old age and in our eternity to rescue us and secure our future. So Naomi has a future, but this story is about something more than that, actually. The way it ends is about more than that. And the book of Ruth is given for more than just telling us a story about Naomi. Secondly, it's a, a message to the people of Israel. Think about it. This is recorded long after Naomi and Ruth are probably dead. We know that David has been born and he's become significant. So they're writing, they're bringing this together to say, look what God did so you can trust what he'll do. That's what's happening in the book. And, and here it's a way of saying, look, God provides a son that gives Israel a future. It's not just about Naomi's future. This is a story for the people of Israel. In the context of this book, what we have here is a story about God sending David, the king, to be Israel's king. He is the son that makes this story significant. Notice right away at the end of verse 17, as it were introduced to this son by name, they named him Obed. Oh, what is significant about him? He's the father of Jesse. That man had a son. That son was Jesse. And Jesse had a son. That son was David. You see, here the people of Israel would have heard, not only did God provide Naomi a son, but in our darkest chapter in our history, the people of Israel would hear that God provided them a son. 
He provides them a son because he wants to preserve them as a people so he can keep his promises to them. Otherwise, they would have been obliterated. We don't really get that, I don't think, when we read that because we see what God does and you've already told yourself the end of the story. But here in the period of Judges, the survival of Israel as a people is pretty dicey. It's pretty uncertain. In fact, I would go so far as to say it's unlikely without God's intervention. That's what this story is about. If it hadn't been for God's intervention of giving them the son, David, they wouldn't have existed as a people. They wouldn't have received his promises. It was God's provision of a son that redeemed them as a people. I'll show you how that works. How does David point us to the redemption of Israel? Well, David becomes the son that God uses to rescue Israel from destruction during this time of history. We take it for granted that Israel as a people survived through millennia. But here the story of Israel is shown to us to be the provision of God. What was Israel like at the time of Ruth? Well, we can answer that question. The book of Ruth is set in the time of Judges. If you've ever read the book of Judges, and we've talked about this quite a bit in this series, but it's set in the book of Judges. Same time, and here, if you were to read and study the book of Judges, here's some things you would see. Israel is at this point like 12 loosely related tribes with no unifying leadership or king. They've been, they, they've strayed incredibly far from God's word. There's this cycle in the book of Judges of, of them straying from God's word, engaging in all sorts of Acts of wickedness, idolatry, forsaking the Lord, and then God, for their goodness, uh, he provides them leadership at times, judges that sustain them. And he sustains them through cycles of restoration, repentance, renewal, falling away, and then the need of another judge. They come under the oppression of the people around them. They've got enemies outside, they've got enemies inside, and they're kind of loosely connected among these 12 tribes. And the end of the book of Judges just tells us what things were like during that time. And here's what it says. In this time, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Not a positive thing, actually. It's, it's a judgment. That people didn't care about the word of God, the instruction of God. They just did whatever they wanted to do. Well, how does Judges end? It shows us how dark it really had become in Israel. The book ends with an intertribal war that threatens their entire existence and a story of the tribe of Benjamin acting more sinful than what we read about in Sodom and Gomorrah earlier on in Gen Genesis. As an example, it's provided as, as an example of how deeply they deserve to be destroyed and judged. How bad their sin was. We're not talking about a fibs here and there. You know, bending the issues. The book ends with open public sexual assault, and it, it, it's like the accepted norm, and nobody cares. <laughs> they don't do anything about it. The townspeople volunteer it over. <laughs> Nobody's protected, and instead of hospitality for the strangers, they're, they're, giving them, uh, they're giving women up to this. Instead of gracious hospitality in the final scenes, we get this scene of how far they've fallen. As the book of Judges closes, the tribes are at war within. They face continuous threats from outside. The likelihood of a people of Israel historically continuing is all but gone. And that's really the scene we get at the beginning of David's arrival on the scene. But see, God had made a promise to the people of Israel. 
Through their seed, a Savior would come that would crush Satan's head, that will restore God's blessing, his salvation, forgiveness, hope, and reconciliation to the nations. This, first, this promise is first made to Abraham, who then has Isaac, and then Jacob. Jacob, who's renamed Israel and has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes. And there's a promise to one of those sons, Judah, who that's his genealogy at the end of this book. That's his son, Perez, that's tied together. And the promise to Judah is that one day God will deliver to the people of Judah a king, and, and they, will, they will have a king. A king will represent them until the real king comes. This is the blessing and promise of Judah. And it's why this book is here. To remind us that God meticulously kept that promise by preserving Israel as a people. So what does he do? He sends David to gather them together. And, and you know, you probably know some of the stories of David. Of course, he defeats the Philistines by defeating Goliath as a young man. But what David accomplished through his kingship, to fast forward kind of through it, before things go awry with Bathsheba and his kingdom sort of unraveled to some degree, what he actually does is he takes these 12 tribes that are splintering and fighting, and he sets up Jerusalem, he brings the Ark of the Covenant, which was their symbol of their relationship and calling before God, and he puts it in the center of that city, and he gathers the people for worship, and he reorders their life around God. And in so doing, he takes them from 12 loose tribes to a kingdom that is flourishing, whose, whose, uh, whose, boundaries, whose boundaries match the promise that God gave to Abraham. They're a flourishing people under David's kingship who now have a name and they have security. And so God took this dark season in the judges, gave them a king in David, and he redeems and restores them to their real calling and hope. The book of Ruth is here to tell us that God provided a son that gave Israel a future. God kept his promise. Now, we said that in a matter of three or four minutes, right? Maybe a little longer than that. But we're talking about a promise over hundreds of years that he keeps to them for the keeping of a further promise. But it says something to us. David is the provision of a son to redeem Israel in the time of the judges. <laughs> Which tells us it's never too dark for God's redemptive promise to take hold in our life. I mean, this is amazing hope. You can never stray so far into the darkness in your life, come under the crushing despair of a broken world and sin, disappointment. You can never be so deeply buried that God's light can't reach you. We've been answering throughout this book the question of what is it like if we decide to return to the Lord? Well, no matter how deeply you're buried, you find a redeemer. You find one that can restore and right now, you might be in the middle saying, you know what, I don't think there's any purpose, hope, future for my life. You know, rampant in our society and much of the culture that we hang out in is, is a temptation to take our lives, to count them as nothing. And understand, life under sin, without the hope of God, is full of despair. And to pretend like we don't, as a people gathered here, experience the poignancy of that despair at times is foolish. And today, right now, you might be sitting here and saying, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's really hope in God. 
I don't know if it'd be worth returning to the Lord. I don't even know what it would look like to return to the Lord. Naomi didn't either. But see, God invites you personally to come to him and put your life in front of him and say, Lord, I'm willing to return to you and trust you as the Redeemer. And we see here through Israel's story that is also our story that it's never too dark for God to redeem, to give hope and a future to you. It's sort of this story says, oh, people of Israel, you know, you can imagine later at a time when they've walked away from him, you know, this story is, is delivered to them, <laughs> saying, should you return? Is it worth it? Will God receive you? Oh, people of Israel, come return to the Lord. He is a restorer of life, a nourisher of your dying old age. When your bones are dry, God can nourish your life. He fills the destitute with life when they truly come home to him. We read from Joel 2 earlier on in the service. But it's preceded by an invitation to repentance as we hear the promise of all that God will do. But it's got one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. He restored the years the locusts have eaten. I mean, that's just the most beautiful hope that we can have. That you might be here and say, you know, I've spent so many years on myself. I've spent so many years on my own sin, walking away from the Lord, not trusting and believing that I could carve out a life on my own that had meaning apart from God. And I blew it all. And the Bible just says, unequivocally, God restores those years. He restores the years the locusts have eaten. But his invitation to experience that is in verse 12 of Joel 2. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. With fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. I don't need an outward display. Down at the depth of who you are. Rend your hearts. Open them before the Lord. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This is who God is. And he relents over disaster. That's a sort of weird phrase to us. He relents over disaster. It's, it comes up again in the next verse. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent. Well, this is from his warning of judgment. This is what it means, though. God is eager to pour out his blessing. These words capture the heart of God. They say to us, God is eager to pour out his blessing on us if we will part with our sin. He's not eager to bring us into judgment and destruction. Whatever your past sins may be, God doesn't relish punishment. He desires to bring restoration, renewal hope and it's personal for you available to you this is the message that ruth shows us his heart is for redemption for those who are repentant well that's not it we see these sort of two sons right obed we see the son david who's a hope for the people of israel but then it ends with this genealogy right and that genealogy and we fast forward in the Bible, finds its place at the beginning of Matthew chapter 1 and tells us how to hear about the sending of another son. You see, the provision of a son is like God's overture. So, you know, think about Star Wars. I, I, use, I think I've used this illustration in the past, but how do you know who's about to show up in a scene in Star Wars? Anybody? The music, right? The music tells you who's coming, right? 
You get a sense that it's, it's an overture. It's, it's, you know, it'd be so interesting now that you probably know this story to, to just take the whole movie off and just put the soundtrack on and walk yourself through the experience of music and know kind of what's going on and the pull back and forth and who's showing up and where the action is around. There's like an overture to it. And the provision of a son is God's overture of how he redeems. In the scripture, it's his walk-up music. I don't know if you pay much attention to baseball. I only do as long as the Phillies can still make the playoffs. And they can, so I'm paying attention. Since they beat the Nats two out of three this past week, they beat the Braves two out of three this past week, they beat the Yankees last night. I'm still feeling a bit hopeful. But if you go to a baseball game, you may notice that it has become pretty standard for different players to have walk-up music, right? The music that plays when they come out of the dugout or come onto the field. Batters have it when they're making their way from the dugout to the plate. You know, closing pitchers have it when they come out from the bullpen. The greatest closer of all times, Mariano Rivera, he always came out to enter Sandman. You know the Metallica song? He was putting people to sleep, right? This game's over, time to go to bed. That was the symbolism, right? Sort of an overture. And so when you heard that, if you were a Yankees fan, you were like, we made it to Mariano, we're going to win this game. Kind of the feel. So batters have it, closing pitchers have it. I would like to have a walk-up song for when I come up to preach, but I haven't been able to work that out with the team yet. You know, it's just this indicator that something good is coming. So the gracious provision of a son is like God's walk-up music for how he redeems the world. This is how God does his redeeming work. Try thinking through the Old Testament and see it. Right after Adam and Eve sin, he promises a son to Eve will be born, somebody, a seed that will come to you that will crush the head of Satan. It's a promise to her. I will send one who crushes the serpent's head. Later, he gives that promise to Abraham. He says, you, I'm going to call you out, and through you, I'm going to keep this big promise of redemption to the nations. I'm going to give you a child, but they were barren. But he gives them Isaac, and we see that the promise is kept through Isaac, through the giving of a son Later, Moses is a son who is rescued through an act of faith by his parents, and, and he becomes a special son appointed by God, and he delivers the people of Israel. Samuel is born amidst fasting and praying from Hannah, and Samuel prepares the way for David to come on the scene in a place that's spiritually prepared. When God begins to redeem, he redeems through the provision of his son. And he does it all through the Old Testament. So when he does it finally and ultimately for us, we would know this is God's redeeming work. All the promises wrapped up in the past are right here in this son. It's God's signature move to redeem through the special provision of a son. There are more we could keep going. Later, Isaiah, when he needs to give hope to the people of Israel. 
They've forsaken the Lord, but if they'll return, you know, the Lord gives them a son, and that son becomes symbolic and, and is a part of even the way we hear the story of the sending of Jesus. All of those sons are a way to build us up to when we read Matthew's genealogy, and we hear all the way through this story about God's provision over multiple times of a son that points to his redeeming work, his restoring hope, and his promise, part of which is this genealogy at the end of Ruth. All of that is to prepare us to hear what is said to Joseph. This child to be born is a son that will save my people from their sins. And so in a special way, we're to hear the words of Isaiah. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. You see, Naomi had a child given to her. Israel had David provided for her them but God has given us a son that redeems us it's 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 God's story it's how he works and this is no ordinary son then that we read about John three sixteen makes it as clear as any passage in the Bible for God so loved the world meaning God in this way loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son Naomi needed a son The people of Israel needed a son, and God gave it to them. And when Jesus was born, God gave us a son, the world a son. Our hope for redemption is promised and provided because God has sent what is described in John 3, God's only begotten son. His unique son. You see, these past sons could restore for a generation. It could give hope into the immediate future. But all along, they were preparing the way for God's eternal son. No son has ever been given like Jesus, who can redeem us not just now, but for all eternity, who has a hope that goes beyond the grave, who for us who have sinned and forfeited our greatest hope in life, connection to God for all eternity. Jesus delivers redemption and restoration to us. For God so loved the world. And listen, it's not, just like Naomi, it's not going to be because of our work or our effort. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, (laughs) believes in him, you see, this is, this is all Naomi could do. <laughs> Just believe the promise. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. The redeeming son of God. For us, for you. And so if you've ever wondered about God's heart for you, if you've ever wondered, if you're, if you're here and you, you've thought, you know, I don't know if it's worth, you know, leaving off of sin and returning my life to the Lord and and trusting his son. Here we realize that God gave us his son that we might be redeemed and restored. That passage goes on, John chapter 3, says that he didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, but that through him we might be saved. It reminds us God's first reaction isn't to condemn and to judge us in our sin, but to rescue and redeem. 
And so here today, he invites you through belief in his son to experiencing his rescue redemption because he has provided a son for us to have a future. This book is the one question that you need to answer for your entire life. It's a very simple question. What is it like to return to the Lord? (laughs) What is it like to return our life to his care? Will he receive me back? Is there any hope for me when I have sinned? And the answer is you have a redeemer in Christ Jesus, the son of God who restores and nourishes those who trust in him. Return to the Lord and have faith that Jesus will redeem you and then watch what God can do for every age. This is our hope. Two applications to consider then as we close. The first one is this, be honest in your despair, but don't let your bitterness have the last word. When we think then about Naomi, the journey that she's been on this is a word for people in despair life can be bitter you haven't experienced that yet it's coming someday promise life can be bitter the consequences of sin can be bitter the effects of other people's sin on our life which we can't usually control can be bitter It's easy to get to a place where it feels like the last chapter of a terrible story. That's the way your life feels. Naomi was there. She couldn't imagine that she would know joy ever again. Imagine saying, just call me Mara. Bitterness. I mean, I want to just sort of use that as your name. You've got to be pretty deep down the well. She couldn't imagine that she would ever know joy again. And some of you may be in the midst of grief like that today. Despair like that. A lack of hope. But look for a moment there in the arms of Naomi. Just be surprised with her. Just be surprised with her. She had renamed herself bitter and the redeeming God showed her that he has the power to bring renewed joy and hope. He has the power to do that. It's not without the memory of the past. There's an end to the weeping. Now the truth is, in life, despair is either ultimate or hope is. If there's no God, despair is ultimate. No matter how much purpose we try to create for ourselves, no matter the stories you try to tell, if God is not a redeemer, despair is the end of our story. We all lay down in death with no hope. But see, if there is God, then, then the end of the story is hope. Of necessity. God can bring fresh hope into your life. And you know, you may be in the midst of a time of despair, but do you, do you know that, that God can bring joy again? And sometimes, for some of us today, you need to pray for and get some people in your life that will remind you that God isn't done. That Jesus died in despair so that you could know that hope always has a tomorrow. His victory over sin through his own resurrection is a promise of our future redemption. A promise of redemption for us that whatever sin in this broken life buries, he can bring to life again. Most importantly, it's a promise for you. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And like Naomi, you may be past fixing it yourself, but there is a redeemer. Be honest in your despair, but don't let your bitterness have the last word. Lastly, trust personally in God's Redeemer. 
The most important thing you could do today is go out of this place knowing that your future has been secured by Christ and you personally have a relationship with God. There's nothing complicated about it. God has given us a son for our redemption. But consider how amazing this book is. God could have kept the promise for Israel without this scene, but here we see this big message of God's redemption being played out in the world is a real message of redemption for individuals. Real people with real names experiencing God's real redeeming work in their life. And it reminds us that no matter how big the story is we're involved in, it's also so small that it's for you. It's that personal. And today, that individual story of redemption can be yours as you repent of your sin and you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, your future doesn't really have the hope of God's restoring, redeeming work. He invites you now to return to him and trust yourself to him. And I would encourage you to leave off your sin, whether you're listening on the live stream or you're here in the room today, that right there where you're at, as we close in prayer today, that you would call upon the Lord for your redemption, trusting in the son that he has provided. And through that, you can have confidence and hope in his restoring work that will nourish you, not just till the end of your life, but throughout all eternity. Will you make it personal today? I mean, you know whether you've made it personal, whether there's been a point in your life where you turn from trusting yourself and sin to really trusting Jesus. If it hasn't, today could be that day for you where you come home to the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me as we close? Maybe while we do that, Maybe you're here and you'd say, I want that redeeming work in my life. You could just voice a prayer to the Lord like this. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've walked from you in ways that have been described here today. That I've fallen short. But today I want to turn from my sin and trust Jesus today. Today I want to be confident that I have a secure future because of Jesus' death for me on the cross. Would you come into my life and renew me and give me hope? Maybe you're here and you've prayed that prayer just now and you meant it from your heart. And the Lord is beginning, you might not even realizing, and he's beginning a relationship of redemption with you that you would be amazed by to see in the future and we want to help you grow in that and if you have prayed that prayer maybe just for a moment and you said today i just prayed with you to trust in christ would you just slip up your hand where you're at and just say today just now that was my prayer it was personal for me nobody's looking around our heads bowed and our eyes are closed and you would say I just made that hope my hope. Lord, we thank you for this day. We are grateful that you're a redeemer. As we celebrate the rest of this service, we celebrate your redeeming work and your hope that you've provided through your son. In Jesus' name, amen.